0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Saturday, December the 9th, 2023. Christmas came early this year. It's almost still over two weeks to go, but for some, Christmas... uh, is already here the very wealthy donor, the multi-billionaire Mackenzie Scott, who used to be uh, married to Jeff Bezos, uh, announced yesterday that she donated two billion dollars to charity, uh, and that totals over sixteen billion since uh, she started her quest to give everything away until the safe is empty. I think she wants to die uh, without any money. Uh, She broke down some of the some of the uh, groups who got some of her cash. She's a philanthropist. Uh, She, for example, donated five million dollars to Maui relief efforts. Of course, the issue of philanthropy is very controversial. Some people believe that it should be focused on American issues like reparations and racial repair. Others argue that the whole thing's a bit of a scam and reflects the hypocrisy of billionaire philanthropists, perhaps like Mackenzie Scott. Uh, My guest today, Amy Schiller, has given this subject a great deal of thought, and she has a new book out this week, The Price of Humanity, How Philanthropy Went Wrong and How to Fix It. She's joining us from Brooklyn today. Uh, Amy, congratulations on the new book. What do you make of... uh, Mackenzie Scott, is she one of the villains or heroines of of your argument?
1: Mackenzie Scott ended up being this very rich subject for my book precisely because she's sort of both. There's a way in which she's very much a heroine of philanthropy, um, and yet it's the positive aspects of her philanthropy, the fact that she's doing it in some ways better than almost anyone else, that also showed the limits of philanthropy. Of what it can accomplish. So with Mackenzie, uh, Scott, I look at the fact that she gives unrestricted gifts. Um, So this is significant because a lot of times when groups need funding, they have to write grant applications and sort of uh, nudge their programming into whatever the donors buzzwords are of the day, whatever their pet projects are to somehow convince them that like, yes, this sort of ongoing work that they're doing is actually very trendy and very appealing to this donor's, whatever this donor's vanity interests are. Um, And then they have burdensome grant requirements. So the fact that McKenzie has done away with that, and has just said, my team is going to quietly vet organizations that I give to. And then at the end, with no burden or responsibility placed on the organization, they're going to just receive news of this unrestricted windfall that they can do what they like with, with which they can do what they like. It's really quite revolutionary. It really decenters her as the donor and says the organization should have this funding to do what, what with as they see fit. So that's great. I applaud that. I think that's a necessary change in philanthropy. And then you have, as you point out, the fact that she's giving away billions, and she probably does plan to die with very little uh, money. I'm sure not destitute, but you know, to have given away the bulk of her wealth. Um, and she's really following through. So unlike a lot of people who signed the giving Pledge, um, she's not waiting until she dies to bequeath it. She's really um, offloading it at a very, very rapid Great. So that's all great. Um, Where, And I would hesitate to call this villainy. um, But where I think there's a downfall or a disconnect is that um, Mackenzie Scott has talked about wanting to address massive social inequality through her giving. Um, She wants this to go to social service organizations that help marginalized populations. She wants this to go to communities of color. Um, She wants to do this in a way that's not about giving to elite institutions, which is another sort of trend that she bucks among her peers, but she wants this to go to, you know, communities on the ground that are in need of support. And that's all fine and good, except that if she were really concerned with economic justice and racial justice, she might be more confrontational. She has these billions of dollars to give away, she might give them to union strike funds. She might give them to um, political organizing or political advocacy. She might embrace giving to C4s that do political lobbying as opposed to C3s. She may do some of that and not publicize it, but it is noteworthy that um, even the best philanthropist, if your aim is to somehow rectify social injustice, even giving away loads of money to the most marginalized populations is not really going to make a difference in the conditions that cause their marginalization. And I, I find myself and I think a few other critics a bit frustrated um, that her aperture is so kind of fo- It's so focused downstream on how to alleviate the effects instead of like really more aggressively using the power that she has with her wealth to intervene in the causes.
0: Yeah, I have to admit that sounds rather vague. I mean, what's she supposed to do? Start a political party? I mean, that. And what's the difference between, say, starting a political party and philanthropy? If you take that argument, if you want to make the world, in your view, at least a more just place, um, aren't all aren't the Koch brothers philanthropists, or at least they would argue they are, because they're trying to make the world a better place?
1: Well, I would argue that there's there is a difference between philanthropy philanthropy is not a good tool for solving political problems so what she's really identifying is um, a political problem that she's trying to solve through philanthropy and I don't think those two go together So my sense is you know if her concern is injustice then uh, there are uh, nonprofits and there are also, you know, C4 lobbying, that lobby on behalf of working people, um, that lobby on behalf of policy change and financial regulation, that would be excellent recipients of her money, um, that would, again, be intervening further upstream in the causes of injustice, um, that would be either, if not directly political, at least sort of intervening at policymaking, as opposed to the kind of downstream effects of those policies
0: you You started by saying that you admire uh, Mackenzie Scott because she'd done away with the the bureaucratic padding that she had direct relations i guess with the people she was giving money or her group had direct relations but given the amounts i mean we're talking about billions of dollars there isn't isn't there a lot of fraud a lot of scams, and a lot of just sort of if not scams a lot of a lot of hype. That you need bureaucracies, you need committees, you need fact checkers to make sure that you're giving uh, people who are doing what they claim to be doing.
1: Well, she does have that. I want to be clear. It's not that she's sort of Googling organizations and, you know, giving this money away to her friends. She has a whole team um at a a consulting firm i believe it's bridge span consulting firm that does do all of that research for her and looks into the tax filings and the finances to make sure that the money is really being utilized well and then they bring her this list but essentially she gives them a very broad mandate and says i want to fulfill you know these particular objectives again it's very secretive i can't say i know for sure what she instructs her team to do but i do know that she has Really large team. Teddy Schleifer at Puck News has done a lot of reporting on this, so she does have a large team that does that sort of vetting. Um, but I think it's in service to doing it, um, doing it quietly, and not by placing that burden on the organizations to prove to to then go through further effort to prove themselves to her. They're just using existing information that they have access to. So that I think is very positive because it really shows that she's not trying to add. To the bureaucratic responsibility of the nonprofits, that she is taking that on with her team.
0: We are speaking with Amy Schiller, the author of an interesting new book on philanthropy The Price of Humanity How Philanthropy Went Wrong and How to Fix It. Uh, Amy, when you were talking, or when we've been talking about Mackenzie Scott and her desire to die without any money, giving it all away in her lifetime, Uh, Andrew Carnegie and those late 19th, early 20th century philanthropists come to mind. Um, Is there a great deal of difference between people like Mackenzie Scott and Carnegie? Are they all operating on the same principles in terms of philanthropy?
1: They're both grappling with the responsibility of having wealth. This was one of the most interesting things that I found when I was researching them. That Carnegie, he wrote the Gospel of Wealth. He wrote other treatises that really laid out his philosophy about why giving things away and how he would give things away uh, was necessary for him as this person who had succeeded so massively. And Mackenzie Scott also used to write more. She doesn't do so um, now, but she used to write more on Medium. She would write these blog posts that really detailed her personal commitments and her sort of personal grappling with what it means to be a person of such wealth and to ha- and what her responsibilities were to others. So I find that to be the first sort of interesting layer, that these are not only very influential billionaires for the amount that they're giving away, but in the fact that they are openly talking about the role of philanthropy and what it is supposed to accomplish. Where I saw a really interesting disjuncture is that Carnegie Built things. He uh, he created things that I think are quite lasting and quite durable. He built the libraries that are yeah. now still existing across the landscape of the United States. And there's something quite valuable about the fact that he built these structures, both because now they're kind of facts on the ground. They are places where people go. That they're attached to. They anchor these communities. Um, they are sort of sanctuaries from the market. We, I feel like we're all the time. Um, we couldn't have we couldn't build or create libraries today because the idea of everything being commodified is so totalized that we couldn't possibly conceive of having a place where you could simply access freely accessed books of course it's all underwritten by taxes and maybe some grants but nevertheless that you wouldn't have to pay for the books that you were reading um it's quite revolutionary and there's a certain irony to the fact that carnegie the much more enthusiastic capitalist built this Um, decommodified space, whereas Mackenzie Scott's profits are from the commodification, at least originally, of books. And it doesn't seem as though she's, um, you know, divested from Amazon. So there is a certain um, duality to each of these people that says like, wow, for all of um, Andrew Carnegie's bluster and Mackenzie Scott's sort of anguish about capitalism and wealth, strangely enough, I I wonder if Carnegie built and created the spaces that more effectively resist the totalizing ambitions of capitalism than what Mackenzie Scott is doing, which, while very noble, again, it's not really creating any kind of alternative to the marketplace, with some exceptions, which I can get into, but it's not really fighting back against the marketplace, it's simply palliative in its effect so are you um, suggesting
0: then and this comes back to your earlier point that i i i i i, I, say I challenge you but i questioned that philanthropy these days to be a good philanthropist and i use that word those words carefully good philanthropist of course i guess you're saying there can be some bad philanthropists um you have to invest in shall we say, anti-capitalist institutions, platforms, ideas that you you need to put your money in, in ways that challenge the market?
1: Yes, I, I would call them alternatives. Um, I mean, of course, my, my issue with Mackenzie is that she um, seems to be quite concerned with the systemic causes of injustice, yet she's not addressing them at the systemic level. I wouldn't say that for all philanthropists. I'm simply expecting consistency in her theory of change. Uh, that said, uh, I do think that philanthropy can provide alternative spaces to the marketplace. They can provide places that democratize access to knowledge, to beauty, to art, to community. But that seems to be very important. And it seems to be a thing now that ph- only philanthropy really has the freedom and the incentive to produce.
0: Should we try and encourage that, though? I mean, the alternative, of course, is the Danish or the Northern European model of having a stronger state, where the the state invests in schools, in libraries, in public spaces for everybody. Isn't your argument one that ultimately vindicates the market by suggesting that men like Carnegie or Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos, they spend half their life destroying society and then the second half reinvesting in their name in schools and libraries. But isn't that the business of the state?
1: I I take a both and approach to that, where I say, yes, absolutely. We should have greater social safety nets and state investment in well-being. Um, The good news about things like libraries and parks is that there really is no upper limit. Um, So that's kind of a good lane for philanthropy to operate in, in kind of expanding the quality of life for people, not just, you know, their basic needs. So in the book, I call this government for bread, philanthropy for roses. And I think there's two reasons for this, Uh, one being a kind of pragmatic understanding of the political possibilities in the short and medium term of like what is possible with the sort of austerity um, regime that we're under and neoliberalism. Like how, how likely is it to have governments really commit to these institutions that provide quality of life? I think unlikely, but even if one were to be a bit more optimistic and say it's possible, even with robust government funding, wouldn't we still want philanthropy to exist to supplement, to pluralize, and in some ways to hedge against potential retrenchment from government? So we would still want philanthropy around for that reason. And then there's a third reason, which is philanthropy means love of humanity. And there's something very humanistic about creating these spaces that really express a love for human capacity to create, to imagine, to congregate And I would want to preserve that. I think there's something quite worthwhile about that, that we would, if we can redeem it in philanthropy.
0: Interesting conversation with Amy Schiller, the author of The Price of Humanity, How Philanthropy Went Wrong and How to Fix It. Um, I want to thank uh, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, for helping us bring you such high quality content and guests. I'm going to run a short piece about Liberties. And then we'll be back with Amy Schiller to talk more about the price of humanity and how to reform philanthropy, how it went wrong, and how we can make it better in the future. So don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought a quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are talking about something equally, if not more, invaluable, uh, philanthropy, how we're supposed to use money or how the wealthy can use money to make the world a more just place. We're talking with Amy Schiller, the author of The Price of Humanity, a woman who's given a great deal of thought, both in theory and practice, to the issue of philanthropy. Amy, let's talk about some positive models. We've talked, um, Jeff, uh, we've talked about uh, Mackenzie Scott and, and, and Jeff Ga- uh, uh, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, uh, Andrew Carnegie. I know you're a big fan of what LeBron James is doing. Tell us more. You had an interesting piece in uh, Fortune about how LeBron James is developing or pioneering a model for philanthropy, which you think is more effective in some ways.
1: Well, I'll say, I'll start where I started in that tweet, which is to say I read an interview with LeBron uh, that he gave, I believe, in 2018. Um, He was asked why... uh, Why did he commit to giving the students at his new school, the I Promise School in Akron, a bike and a helmet? And his reasoning was when I was a kid, having a bike was what made me feel free. I remember reading that that stayed with me for many years um, since, and it made me think it's so rare for philanthropists to speak in such human terms ironically given the meaning of the word to speak with such empathy and such attunement to the full subjectivity of the people who they're supporting not talk about the analytics not talk about the sort of data of um how many how how much their earning potential had improved or um how many like the quantifiable uh metrics of how many lives they save, but really the quality of their lives. Um, and then I looked into this further and so I found, well, I found the bikes to be this really wonderful indicator. I found that that sort of carries through much of his philanthropy. So there's the I Promise School, the I Promise Village, which is a transitional housing community uh, in Akron. There's a, uh, a three, House 330, which is a celebration space. And all of these are beautiful spaces in downtown Akron that are accessible to this community that I think LeBron knows. In fact, he said from his- Is that that where he
0: grew up, LeBron in Akron? where
1: he grew up, he grew up in Akron. And I should say full disclosure, I grew up in Cleveland. So there's a certain Northeast Ohio affinity for all of this and might have been a little bit more aware of LeBron's statements than your average person. But nevertheless, um, setting that my own personal connection aside, Um, the fact that all of these spaces are beautiful, the fact that all of these spaces are like lovely and welcoming and that they offer enrichment, not just sustenance, but enrichment. Um, and then on top of that, you have the fact that the I promise school is a public school. It's not a charter school. Um, and so when I talk about philanthropists who buck the trends, I'm really talking about philanthropists who resist what I think is the very common tendency these days to, sort of use philanthropy to create sort of replicas of the marketplace and privatization. Um, and so what uh, what LeBron has done is create this public school that has this philanthropic supplement. So we were just talking about the role of government. You can see it in a kind of nice equilibrium there where the, there's public governance and there's a collective bargaining agreement for their teachers, but then the LeBron James Family Foundation provides All these wraparound services for the families that also includes all of this enrichment and all of these um, quality of life investments for people that really, I think, make them feel valued as full human beings.
0: Amy, I'm talking to you from San Francisco. It's hard to, so to speak, swing a cat in San Francisco without bumping into a, a Mark Zuckerberg hospital or a Mark Benioff hospital. You mentioned LeBron James, in, in his, the way in which his name has been associated with a more local initiative in Akron. Is one of the problems with how philanthropy has gone wrong in America that these incredibly wealthy people use it as a form of moral status, that the Benioffs and the, the Zuckerbergs and perhaps even the, the Jameses of the world, that they do it to prove their virtue as a kind of virtue signalling?
1: Yes, broadly speaking, that is always a danger with philanthropy, that it's a sort of um, reputation washing um, issue. And some of that is because, you know, by sort of putting that responsibility at the individual level um, of saying, "Oh, well, there these individual philanthropists are trying to cover up their misdeeds. I think we overlook. The fact that systemically we really do not have enough guardrails when it comes to taxation, when it comes to our labor regulations, when it comes to our social safety net, we simply do not have enough guardrails against those abuses of um, extreme accumulation of both wealth and power. So like, yes, of course, it's a uh, it's a deflection of criticism, but it is also criticism that I think often gets directed at individuals that can also rightly be focused on the um, the sort of regulatory and policy environment that created a Mark Zuckerberg, that allowed a Mark Zuckerberg to exist. Um, so I, I almost want to depersonalize our critique and say, yes, of course, that's an issue of philanthropy, but that's so far downstream of the the real source of our problem which is just like policy that enables vast inequality
0: isn't there a certain irony though to a book about philanthropy that suggests that uh philanthropists should be giving money to ideas and movements that challenge the system but it's the very nature of the system that creates the multi-billionaires they the Mackenzie Scotts, the Jeff Bezos's, the Mark Zuckerberg's, the Mark Benioff's, the LeBron James, who give to philanthropy in a sense. What you're suggesting is the good society is one without philanthropy.
1: I would say it's philanthropy in its proper lane. So the uh, that's why there's that kind of duality and segmentation. Again, the both and of saying, okay, we do need a more equitable political economy. And we do need stronger regulation. My issue with um, philanthropy remaining is that I think there's something very valuable about money that does not have to um, conform to the dictates of the market for profit or uh, to kind of the cost effectiveness that government often has to operate under. So the example that I give in this is, uh, of this is the Cleveland Museum of Art, again, we're going back to my roots in Cleveland, um, is their, their motto is at the Cleveland Museum of Art for the benefit of all the people forever. And there's something quite powerful about having that scope and that temporality attached to it. I don't think any other kind of mm-hmm. money can yeah. really have that sort of ambition and that kind of expansiveness. So there's something worthwhile about philanthropy preserving this sort of evergreen commitment to humanity and human um capacity and flourishing. And I think that's actually quite valuable now when we have so many social forces and economic forces that are trying to um, diminish the value of human beings, diminish the value of human beings in labor through automation, diminish our value to sort of only our economic productivity. There's something quite necessary, I think, about um, philanthropy properly done, and in a society, again, in a context where the accumulation of wealth and taxation are sort of better regulated, I think what remains then, the surplus that I think would inevitably remain, should be used to kind of affirm the value of humanity.
0: It's interesting you bring up technology, Amy. I'm sure you're all too familiar with the the controversy over open AI. Uh, the New York Times this morning leads with a story about the intellectual debates between effective altruists and pro-market forces within OpenAI. Uh, the Wall Street Journal also focuses on this. What do you make of the effective altruism movement? I mean, of course, it's it's had some bad press because of its association with Sam Bankman-Fried, who is now in prison. Um, is effective altruism the branch of philanthropy that you're sympathetic to? with is that another term to define what you're arguing for in the price of humanity
1: oddly enough i would say i'm in favor of ineffective altruism i'm saying that sort of tongue-in-cheek but um the way effective altruists defend uh, sort of define their philanthropy is through this kind of narrow and rigid quantifiable model that I, i think exemplifies the very utilitarianism that I'm actually trying to push back on. I think there's a, what, what effective altruism sort of did was um, sublimate the more holistic uh, potential of philanthropy into this kind of algorithmic engineering model of saying, okay, well, we can, money can only be, should only be used for its greatest yield, for its greatest utility, defined as the extension of healthy and productive human life, human survival. Um, And the absolutism of effective altruism is maybe my greatest foil in the book. This kind of reduction of everything down to that very prescriptive, narrow definition of humanity as bare life, as survival, as opposed to the much more capacious understanding of our Um, of our abilities. I actually write about, uh, this is a bit of field, but I will say there's a reference to Prometheus um, um, in my treatment of AI, the Prometheus myth. And we think Prometheus gave fire to human beings. um, And that's his gift. But in fact, if you look in the Aeschylus, uh, his gift was every art, every art, every ability to humanity to imagine and to create um, and to sort of sustain and build a civilization. So it isn't just about survival, really. It's about imagination and creativity and capacity to build new things and to sort of do so in a collective with others. So I think effective altruism has the wrong definition of what constitutes humanity, the kind of what humanity it claims to love. And my definition of humanity is really about human flourishing and full human potential. So no, I don't endorse effective altruism. I endorse a kind of altruism that by their lights would be seen as ineffective because it's not, des- it's not designed to create immediately quantifiable measurable impact. It's meant to create the sort of evergreen cultivation of human flourishing that is difficult to measure. And I think by design is so.
0: Yeah, you gave me a great title for uh, the piece, uh, Amy, we'll say, In Praise of Ineffective Altruism. I take your point and that critique of utilitarianism and this obsession with quantification, particularly in our AI age. But what about the other problem? You keep on talking about humanity. It's a very soft, vague term. I saw another headline this morning um, in our age where uh, Israel is increasingly an enormously controversial subject. There was one piece in the Jerusalem Post, one supposed expert that argues that diaspora, and I'm just quoting here. I'm not sure I even know what it means. Diaspora Jews need to divert from anti-Israel philanthropy. We know those kinds of arguments. So the, the problem with, isn't the problem with your argument in terms of defining everything around humanity, it depends Whose humanity it is for those pro-Israel, Zionist Jews? That's a legitimate point for people who care about the suffering of the the Palestinian people. The reverse is true. How can we ever define anything if uh, if everything is is subjective and determined by how we define whatever this word humanity means?
1: Well, first I want to say that I, you know, I reject that position um of saying which position yes i reject the position of somehow uh it is the responsibility of diaspora jews to uh use their money to prop up the state of israel um that i think that in fact has been a um that i think has been a real problem and a real i I think it has only further inflamed um the conflict and um and the the um the destruction of the conflict um, is this sense that somehow um, diaspora Jews need to continue funding another state's uh, acts of war. Um, So I fully reject that. Um, And I, I take your point about, you know, it really comes down to, well, whose humanity is, are we seeing? My hope is that by taking philanthropy um, to really as a tool to expand our empathy for others and to create the spaces that actually put us in contact with other people, maybe even people unlike ourselves, um, that that would help us um, kind of nurture these qualities of greater empathy as opposed to the sort of retrenchment uh, that I think comes from really not having places and spaces to experience the full plurality of human life. that I think that's a real dearth of like our local lives of our national life and our national culture. So my hope is that, you know, in a very long-term way, in a very long-scale way, uh, that those spaces would somehow um, engender a more open sensibility towards the humanity of all others and not just the humanity of people that we will organically interact with and identify with.
0: Amy final question you revealed your hand when it comes to your suspicion of AI and the quantification of everything and our, at least in your mind our degeneration into this hard utilitarianism but um we're ending all our conversations these days on keen on with a question about AI uh it's neither good nor bad of course some of it will be done for good some not for for not for not so good and it will create a huge wealth which will have, I guess we'll eventually come back to philanthropy, uh, in part at least. But if there was one thing that you would like to see AI fix in the first part of the 21st century, what would it be?
1: Well, my honest answer is nothing. Um, But I'm going to take the question Well, I want you to be
0: honest. That's a fair answer. No, I I, I think it's...
1: um, I, I think my concern with the question is the is like the slippery slope. And maybe this is a paranoid view of mine, the sense of like, oh, but perhaps AI can solve these problems without negative consequences, but then, you know, but not others. I I don't know enough about what, how it would go about devising solutions. And it would ultimately come down to the humans devising the queries. So I'm not entirely sure if AI, broadly speaking, can solve problems um, in this sort of like independent way of sort of human intervention. Um, so I, I can't honestly say that I know of a problem that I would want to um, resolve with the intervention of AI simply because I don't know how those would be designed or who would be designing them.